a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is a podcast that's based on international politics. So every week we choose a different topic and we break it down for you. This man, the all-knowing one, the all-wise one, <laughs> Dr. Keith Souter, absolute expert on anything to do with international politics and relations. You could literally just be having a conversation with him, throw any question at him about something around the world and he's got the background on it. It's quite extraordinary. We've worked together for a number of years. Yeah. You've got a couple of PhDs on international relations as well, Keith, and related topics. Um, we've worked together on television and now here. My name's Kate Mack. We're going to talk today about how to change the world because there are a number of people that have done it. <laughs> That's right. So what I thought we'd look at is um, uh, when you look at all around the world, you've got all these demonstrations for climate change, Black Lives Matters, et cetera. And there's so much that one could talk about in terms of political change. Um, I, I, we would just focus perhaps this program on two characteristics. One is what's called the Overton Window issue. And the second one is the long march through the institutions. So um, beginning with the what's called the Overton Window, which we're all familiar with, even if we're not familiar with the jargon. So the late Dr. Joseph Overton was looking at how change comes about in American society. He was working for uh, an American think tank. And he was intrigued by the way at, at any point of time, and we both know this because we work in the media, at any one time, there are certain ideas which are acceptable and there are ideas that are not acceptable. And he called that those ideas that were acceptable the Overton window. And the Overton window moves over time. So something which would be unthinkable in one era becomes standard policy in a later era. So it's not a, a thing that's driven by politicians. That's the important thing to note here in political change. It's not driven by the politicians. The politicians are followers, not leaders. And so their job is to try to work out where the Overton window is on any issue. So just running through a few examples, let's take one that is occurring at this very moment as we speak, which is the change in the Democrat Party in the United States towards Israel and Palestine. Now, the United States has been a great supporter of the state of Israel since it was created 73 years ago. Um, and it's been bolstered, for example, with the influx of conservative Christians, what are called Christian Zionists, who've got their own agenda. They want to have the Jews move back into Israel and then get ready for the return of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, right? They've got their own agenda. They're going to convert those Jews and then they'll be ready for when Jesus returns. So there is a whole obscure theological agenda, which I spent ages discussing, but it'll be a bit misleading in this program. But the key thing is that until recently, both political parties in the United States were very solidly pro-Israel. I think in the last few months, we've seen the Overton window begin to change in the Democrat Party. So what is happening now is you've got a new generation of young activists coming through who are far more sympathetic towards the Palestinians. And linked to that, of course, you've got Congresswoman Tlaib, who's the first ever Palestinian-American in Congress. So we're seeing this demographic change. So you've got Palestinian migrants or their children who are now willing to get involved 
in the American political process because the American process is mainly for stale pale males. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, right. Trump and Biden, et cetera. Obviously, it's now opened up to people of colour with Barack Obama, uh, although he was a very much a, a white politician. And so we're, we're seeing this change that's gradually occurring. So I think the Overton window is beginning to move. And I notice this in terms of the, the rhetoric which is now being used, you know, that you get some Palestinian-American activists who talk about apartheid in Israel, the way in which you've got um, allegations of Palestinians being forced to live in particular communities, what the South Africans would call Bantu Sons, and so they're, they're broken up into other areas. So for me, I find it fascinating that we can actually see live the movement of the Overton window. And Biden's genius for decades has been that he's always known where the centre of the Democratic Party is. He doesn't go out onto the left too far and he doesn't go out to the right too far. But it, the ground under his feet is moving. And Biden is now going to be challenged to be thinking about how he's going to handle the Palestinian issue into the future. And of course, this has come to light in the last few weeks because of the most recent war or conflict uh, between Hamas in the uh, Gaza Strip and the Israeli government. So that's the Overton window in operation. So the Overton window is not created by the politicians. Instead, the politicians spend all their time scrambling to try to find out where the Overton window is on, on each issue. It's a sense check. So where is the majority of the population? Where are their thoughts? To be aware of that and being able to tap into that is such a power. It is. And Bi that's Biden's genius. His problem is that he doesn't lose his touch when it comes to the issue now of Palestine because it is moving very quickly. Another one is the whole issue of Black Lives Matter. And it's interesting that President Biden is the first ever American president to go to Tulsa on the anniversary of that awful massacre in Tulsa almost 100 years ago. First American president to go there on that day to commemorate that massacre. Luckily, there are three people who lived through that massacre who are still in existence, so they were honoured by the president. But again, that, you see, that's the Overton window moving. There's suddenly a lot of white Americans are saying, yeah, we ought to be listening to what's going on with, with the Black Lives Matter campaign. And so one way of changing the political process is through activism. So it's Black Lives Matter. And for me, the, the issue with Black Lives Matter is not just removing old statues of Confederate generals, but it's actually getting down to issues like the redlining, which is a local planning decision, whereby you put all the people of colour into one community area and that over time their property values decline um, so they don't get the opportunity to accumulate capital from one generation to another. Unlike we rich people who are white, that we collect real estate and we can hand that on to the children or whatever. So there's still a lot more to be done. But for me, it is fascinating that suddenly Black Lives Matter have been able to have an impact in terms of that issue. The same with the Extinction Rebellion and the way that young people are now coming out and taking action on climate change, including young people who are actually taking, well, in Australia's case, a government minister to court, the environment minister, but not doing enough to protect their future well-being. And we've had, of course, the dramatic shell case in the Netherlands from Friends of the Earth. So this again shows the ground is moving. And the problem for politicians is to work out, well, how is the ground shifting? And how do I, therefore, respond? The, the argument is they are the people. How do I get in front of them? 
<laughs> you know, they are the ones, the people give the leadership on certain issues. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda, and we're talking today about, well, it is. It's about how to change the world. It is, it is how to read the population, Keith. Not just as politicians, though, right? No. And, of course, a second way of trying to change the world is to work through the corridors of power. In other words, a long march through the institutions. This is an idea associated with an Italian Marxist by the name of Gramsci, who uh, was imprisoned by Mussolini and was released from prison just before he died. So he was in the 20s and 30s. And Gramsci argued that Karl Marx's views were out of date. We're not going to get a rebellion by the workers who are going to take over the society because Gramsci in Italy could see that the workers were interested in a better standard of living, not necessarily in political revolution, right, which is what we've seen in China as well more recently, the idea that the workers are not inherently revolutionary. They just want to have a better standard of living a better house, et cetera. So you can keep them quiet by making them happy. Yeah, exactly. Before it gets out of control. So Gramsci says, well, we Marxists have got to come up with a new way of doing things. You know, we we can't have people out for May Day parades, et cetera. That doesn't work. And, of course, by that time the Soviet Union had given communism a bad image anyway, given what was going on in the Soviet Union. And so Gramsci says, well, what we need to do is to put people inside institutions who have got revolutionary fervour and are willing to work within the institution. So you gradually take over a country's political philosophy or whatever. And the standard example that I quote is the work of the Mount Pelerin Society, which you probably haven't heard of, and yet it's, it's transformed our lives. Small group of people. So going back to the 1930s, we had the Great Depression. And uh, you had economists like John Maynard Keynes, politicians like President Roosevelt in the United States, who said the government must do far more to end unemployment. It's got to explicitly tackle that. And we need more public works programs. We've got to put money into people's pockets, etc. And that's what's called the Keynesian economic revolution. The idea that the government should get involved in running the economy and should put money in and, and should borrow if necessary to finance economic growth. But there were people in the in the 30s and 40s who were saying this will lead to the destruction of the national economy. You can't trust politicians with money. They'll be bribing the voters all the time. So John Maynard Keynes has said, what you do is you put the money in during a recession and then when you get a booming economy, you take the money out by increasing taxation. And these um, other economists said politicians will never... Uh, increased taxation. Politicians are unreliable. You just can't trust them. So after World War II, a group of these people, including a, a fellow called Frederick Hayek, who'd, been, who'd fled Central Europe with the rise of Hitler and was then teaching at the London School of Economics and ultimately went on to live in the United States. These people, whom we would now call in Australia New Right Economic Rationalists, met together at Mont Pelerin, in Switzerland, just a, an ordinary resort, because Switzerland had not been involved in World War II, had not been destroyed during the Allied or German bombing. So they met together in 1947 and created the Mount Pelerin Society. 
And that was an example of how you have the long march through the institutions. So they decided to produce economic textbooks uh, to educate the next generation of economists uh, into those people teaching their students in turn that governments should not be too large, we should cut back on the size of government, that deficits are bad, that austerity programs can be good. And, And so for me, what is fascinating, if you go back to 1947 and you'd say, well, we're going to create this society to cut back on government expenditure, whoever you spoke to would have said, that's madness. Look, here in Australia, we're building this great snowy river dam, the biggest, well, the first loan offered by the World Bank. We're the ones who got in there first. We're into building dams. We're doing bridges, et cetera. We're going to pour money into universities, et cetera. So if you'd said, oh, we're going to have smaller government, we're going to privatise, we're going to corporatise, you would have been said you were mad. But these people, the long march through the institution, just kept at it. And they were getting their plans in place for when Keynesianism stumbled, which was 1973. By that time, just as they had predicted in the 1940s, the economy was plagued by inflation. We, in fact, had a new thing called stagflation, which the economics textbooks will tell you can't exist, but of course it did, which is that you had a mixture of stagnation and inflation. And so they were able to say to politicians like Margaret Thatcher, like Ronald Reagan in the United States, here's a new way of running an economy. Now, in Australia, they worked through the Labour Party. So Bob Hawke, when he came to power, was a new right economic rationalist. Uh, We now know that um, Malcolm Fraser, who was then the Conservative Prime Minister, the Liberal Prime Minister, and John Howard, his young treasurer, were feuding over new right economic thinking. So Fraser was an old-fashioned, old-right person who said we've got to continue to put money into the economy. And you had John Howard as this rising new star, very young treasurer, who had read the textbooks from the new right. But he didn't get the chance to implement it because it was Hawke who got elected in 1983. But we can run together the period of the Hawke Labor government, the Keating Labor government, and the Howard Liberal government. So we run a a time from, was that, that 83 through until 2007. Different political parties, same economic outlook. New right economic rationalism. So that's your long march through the institution. So you've got at least there two alternatives. One is that you can campaign out in the street. You can have your rallies, some of which work, others don't. Uh, But you could try to change the Overton window. Or you can become a bureaucrat or you work in big business and you then work through the corridors of power, not seeking personal glory for yourself, not seeking coverage in the media, but working very quietly behind the scenes, writing the speeches that the ministers are going to read out. After all, politicians are just empty vessels, which the public servants and the think tanks fill. Their job is simply to read out what's put in front of them. And uh, so for me, it's fascinating. These These are two approaches to trying to work for political change. And let's hope that I guess, Keith, it's exciting when political change happens and there's a bit of a shift. Well, there is, but it can also go badly, wrong, uh, but it, it, that, that's a risk, remember? It's the, what the Overton window, it does not say the policies are good, it's just that they're changing. This is the risk that you run, that the policies will change, but it won't necessarily change as you would like it 
or how the historians would say that was a smart move. It's just simply how you can manipulate public opinion or manipulating the, the politicians behind the scenes in the long march through the institutions. Maybe that's the more poignant point for me, working in that kind of government area as well in my full-time yep. job. Hmm? Absolutely. Note, note taken, Keith. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Suter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.